I realize this could come as a very significant shock to you, but um, I was the third fastest high school sprinter in the state of Minnesota. Uh, the joy of that was diminished when uh, my times at our, our state championships were significantly slower than previous times I had um, accomplished on account of severe, severe pain in my knees. Just happened the week before those that state meet, and, and nevertheless, uh, my, my dream remained that I would recover and compete again after high school. But that dream was shattered when, over the course of my first year in college, the pain did not diminish; it just got worse. And an orthopedic specialist informed me that that I had a chronic condition it was not going to go away ever, and. Um, I had not had to process a loss like that up until that point in time. That was a, that was a hard thing. The next year, I met a girl, and I was smitten. And in my mind, she was the one, and I could spend blissful, bliss-filled hours imagining our life together. <clears throat> Nevertheless, she had dreams as well, and uh, dreams that would be lost if she committed herself at that point in time to me. And so my dream was shattered on the day we had that hard conversation. And that, that really hurt. That hurt more than my knees. <laughs> because it touched a different spot. Fast forward a few years. Um, I was married. We had three sons. We were living in paradise. I was the senior pastor to a people that I loved very much and a spiritual community that I had dreamed of. I had dreamed of being the pastor of this church, leading this church, before it had become an astonishing astonishing reality. I've been imagining it for five years, and then it happened. And not only that, I had imagined a church that would develop and deploy leaders. I imagined a church that would plant churches among the peoples of the Pacific Rim, and it was happening. However, I was very much like the Joseph of Genesis 37, 1 through 11. I was raw, I was immature, I was proud, a little full of myself. Um, I believed that my marriage and my ministry and the spiritual community existed to serve and to satisfy me. And when my wife and when my work and when our church failed to fill up my empty Places I would get depressed and angry and difficult. And it, when it all came to a boiling point and we left paradise and I left the role and the dream identity that I loved so much and all the sweet realities that I had imagined, all the great, all the great dreams I had dreamed were gone. I grieved a loss that was the most intense 
bereavement I'd ever felt. You see, we just don't have categories, clear categories, when it comes to unanticipated endings to our plans for a particular future or the loss of all the possibilities of what might have been or the death of an emotionally important, significant image of oneself. But at some point, each and every one of us will, some of you already have, experienced the loss of a dream. The loss of dreams creates a special kind of grief. And God has communicated himself to us in Genesis chapter 37, verses 12 through 36, in order to strengthen us and to console us and to encourage us when painful endings such as these take place. So, I want to invite you now. I'm going to, I'm going to, this is a longer text. I'm going to read the whole thing. I want you to hear this story. And so, please follow along. Give your full attention to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to look at verses 12 through 36. Now, his brothers, that's Joseph's brothers, went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel... That's Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he, Jacob, sent him, Joseph, from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, well, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, They conspired against him. His brothers conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let's kill him. Throw him into one of the pits. And then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, He rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother 
and conceal his blood. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, returned to his brothers and said, The boy's gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. And then they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is what God has spoken. Let's pray. Again, Father, we marvel, we marvel that you would communicate yourself to us. That you would breathe out words that become text of Scripture. There is divinity in these words. There's, there's, you're in these words. And I pray that that would not just be a thought, but that you would that you'd vindicate that truth today, that you would make it real to us today, that, that we would experience your manifest, discernible presence and power in the words of Scripture and by the work of your Holy Spirit, making the light go on. We'd see what you want us to see and hear what you want us to hear and that our hearts would receive all that you would want us to receive the way you want us to receive it so that you would get glory for what you have said and what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my goal in this sermon is to offer to you God-centered encouragement for the times when your dreams are shattered. Shattered dreams litter this narrative. And the first and, and the most obvious is Joseph's shattered dream. In Genesis 37 verse 7, Joseph, in a dream, a prophetic spirit-inspired dream, had seen himself harvesting grain with his brothers, and then suddenly... Uh, their 11 sheaves of grain bowed down to his sheaf. 
And then after that, according to Genesis 37, verse 9, he had another spirit-inspired dream. We know it's a spirit-inspired dream because of what happened later, much later on. But in this dream, the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed down to him. And um, we also know that according to Genesis chapter 37, verse 8, Joseph's brothers, his flesh and blood, they hated him. They despised him. These dreams, they hated him so much that according to Genesis 37, verse 4, when their paths would cross around the home, they couldn't even say to him, peace, peace to you. They couldn't say shalom. And yet in spite of this toxic environment in the house, (laughs) Jacob sends Joseph to Shechem where his brothers had gone to pasture the sheep in order to find out, according to chapter 37, verse 14, if it was well with them. It's interesting that the word we have translated well is the word shalom. What was he thinking? What was Jacob Jacob thinking? How did he he imagine these brothers were going to receive Joseph? Miles from home, wearing that cursed cape. And uh, in verses 19 to 20, we see how they received him. They see him coming from a distance, and, and they've got a plan. It says, here comes this dreamer. It, literally, the master of dreams. I mean, they, they just were so filled with bitter sarcasm towards him. The master of dreams is coming. Come now, let's kill him. Throw him into one of the pits, and then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. And at this point, the the oldest brother, Reuben, he intervenes and suggests that instead of shedding Joseph's blood, they should simply throw him into a pit. And, And apparently, he had some plan to rescue Joseph later on, bring him back to their father. It's probably not speculation at all to conclude that this was in some attempt to win back some favor from Jacob, since it was Reuben who was the one who had in, in rebellion and spite had slept with one of Jacob's concubines. And so, so going with Reuben's advice, the brothers didn't kill Joseph right off, but instead stripped him of the robe, threw him into the pit. And then they sit down to eat lunch like, is this any other day? And then as they're eating... Along comes the caravan of merchants on their way to Egypt. And, and then Brother Judah, he's, he's got a better idea. In verse 27, he says, come, let's sell him. Let not our hand upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, I mean, he'll still be dead to us. We can gain some profit without all the mess. I to think about that. Uh, what's the real difference between human trafficking and outright murder? Either way, you're stealing somebody's life. And then the brothers had to work out their story. And, 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 and it's worth noting that they don't actually lie to their father. They produce this bloody robe, and then they simply say in verse 32, well, this we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And there's some rich irony here because 
if you're familiar with the earlier parts of the, the story of Genesis, it was Jacob. It was his, Joseph's father who himself had used a garment and a dead goat to deceive his own father, Isaac, in order to steal his brother Esau's favored position. And then according, you know, things just come around, don't they? They come around again and again and again. And then according to verses 34 and 35, Jacob mourns for his son. And uh, the author really wants us to know, um, to focus on his refusal to be comforted by all his other sons and all his daughters, which highlights once again really the problem. It's, It's really the fallen condition focus of this entire chapter. Namely, for Jacob, for Jacob, his other children don't, don't count for much to him. That's really the the besetting, presenting problem, which points us to a second shattered dream. Joseph's not the only one whose dreams have obviously come to a sudden screeching halt. It's as if Joseph had been Jacob's only son. So that with his death, Jacob's own life was over. You see, it's, it's not just Joseph's dreams that were shattered by the events of that day. Jacob had dreams. Dreams that were absolutely destroyed. How so? Well, Jacob's over-the-top grief is, is a manifestation of his favoritism of Joseph. Jacob had invested all of his hopes, all of his dreams into this one son. You see it back in chapter 37, verse 3. Now Israel, and again, referring to Jacob, Jacob loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because He was the son of his old age. Now, now this is the hint. This is the clue that we need to follow, right? He's the son of his old age. It it is not, again, speculation to conclude that Jacob's love for Joseph is linked to a promise in the past, namely Abraham and his affection for his son Isaac. If you go back to Genesis chapter 27, verse 2, this is what it says. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a, get this, a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Genesis 27, verse 7. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a, get this, a son in his old age. Now see, it's not speculation here to conclude that Jacob saw Joseph as the child through whom the Lord's promise of blessing, the promise of a messianic seed by which he would, he would make Jacob's offspring into a company of peoples, a, a, a community, congregation to bless the nations. But now, with Joseph's assumed death, presumed death, the dream Jacob had treasured and stored in his heart And the dream Joseph, Joseph's dream of the sun and the moon and the stars coming and bowing to him. These were dreams that could not now be fulfilled. 
And this is why the loss of Joseph was not merely one of life's greatest and most painful storms in Jacob's life. It became a storm he could not weather. It was a grief he could not bear. But God means to communicate encouragement in this text to all who would endure the grief of shattered dreams. Encouragement, encouragement, encouragement when dreams are shattered. In a, in a very striking way, in a brilliant way, Moses, who is the author, the writer of this narrative, he, he brings us to the, the close of this chapter juxtaposing <laughs> Jacob's inconsolable grief and Joseph's safe arrival in Egypt. See how he does this? Look at verses 35 and 36. Jacob says, no, no, I'm going down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. You see, Joseph's story is not over yet. He's not in Sheol. He's not in the garbage heap. He's just down in Egypt. Precisely where God's providence had positioned him. Loved ones, you see, the first and best encouragement from God to his children when our dreams are lost is the truth, the unshakable truth of his sovereign control over all our circumstances. Not just the good ones, the worst ones. This truth is going to be repeated over and over and over and over in Genesis 37 to 50, and that's because we need to hear it over and over and over again. God's sovereignty is at work here in very complex and very profound ways in this story, just as it is in our stories. Think of all the coincidences, the so-called coincidences, that have to line up in order to position Joseph in Egypt where he needed to be in order for God to fulfill his promises and his purpose for Joseph and his broken family and ultimately for the whole world. Look at it. First, none of this would have happened had not Jacob sent Joseph to go check on his brothers. Verses 13 and 14. None of this would have happened had Joseph um, not had this kind of a random meeting with some random dude who, who tells him that the brothers had gone to Dotham, verses 15 and 17. In fact, if the brothers had stayed in Shechem, Joseph would have found them right off the bat. And then they would not have been on the main camel route to Egypt. And even though Dothan was on the main camel route... I mean, it could take days, it could take weeks and not see anybody on this road heading in the right direction. And then Reuben's plan 
to put Joseph in a pit instead of killing him right off the bat, that had to be accepted first. But then it also had to fail, (laughs) right? Ultimately, because Reuben needed to be out of the picture, away, absent, when the crucial decision was made to sell Joseph. He would have blocked that move. And then this passing caravan of Ishmaelites needed to be going to Egypt and not the other direction. And they had to sell Joseph to Potiphar in Pharaoh's household so that all the pieces would be in place for the next part of the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. Oh, and one more thing. Jacob had to be successfully deceived by the brother's deceptive ploy with this bloody cape. Otherwise, if he sniffs out what really happened, (laughs) you could be sure the family would have at that point in time been absolutely and irreparably torn apart by the infamy of the brother's sin. All these things needed to happen in exactly the right order, at exactly the right time to get Joseph exactly where he needed to be so that ultimately he could save the entire family from a catastrophic weather-related famine. There's another wild card in the picture that wasn't going to happen for about two decades. So do you think all that is just coincidence? Not so much. But now also consider this. Consider how painfully confusing these circumstances had to have been for the people going through them. God was in sovereign control of everything, and yet that sovereign control involved destroying the peace and joy of those whose dreams were in fact shattered. Think about it. God's sovereign plan left Joseph, a dearly loved son, stripped naked and thrown in a pit. God's sovereign plan for the good of his family and our spiritual blessing left Jacob inconsolably bereaved in a state of sorrow and mind-numbing, heart-breaking emptiness that was going to mark his life for the next 20 years or so. Jacob's and Joseph's dreams were completely shattered and there was no voice from heaven telling them, be at peace. It's all going to work out for good. They had nothing to fall back on except their trust in God and hope in His promises, including the promise, I will make you fruitful and I will make you uh, multiply you and I will make you to be a company of peoples. You think there were, there may have been times when there their faith gave way to crushing doubts and deep despair. 
And perhaps you are slogging through doubts as to whether God is really in control of the the broken mess your life has become. Is God anywhere in this? Or, and this is sometimes harder, maybe you do believe God is in control. And you've become bitter and resentful at the particular lot or the direction He has chosen to steer your life. You know that it is God who has shattered your dreams. And you're having a very challenging time dealing with that reality. Loved ones, no other way to say it. God's providence does sometimes take us into and through storms that utterly shipwreck our hopes and our dreams. And He does not promise, He does not promise an easy life of health and wealth for His followers. And yet it is precisely God's loving providence that is at work in these most painful seasons. He is not temperamental, He's not capricious, He's not mean, bringing painful circumstances into your life for no reason at all. He has lessons He means to teach you, He has good works for which He means to prepare you which cannot happen unless you pass through this particular storm. Joseph cannot save his people by staying comfortably at home. Jacob's idolatrous, idolatrous love for Joseph must be challenged. And for that to happen... Joseph must be taken away. God loves Jacob too much to let him comfortably hold on to that idolatry. And in the same way, our pain in union with Christ is never meaningless. God always has a good purpose to accomplish through it. Even if it takes a long time for us to discern what it is. Now, there's one more observation, and uh, this, this is where, it's where many people balk at God's sovereignty. You see, God's, God's not just sovereign in sovereign control over all circumstances. He is also, His sovereignty extends as well over willful Sin. It raises a question, right? The story raises a question. If God is sovereign, is He also sovereign even over the brother's willful sin? It's a hard thing. We might be able to accept God's sovereignty over some circumstance that, you know, some natural disaster or accident or whatever. That's, that's hard enough. But what if it's being sinned against? Is he even in control of that? Isn't human evil simply the result of human free will? And we would say, yes. And, yes, and also. You see, see, loved ones, we all have 
a lot of sinful thoughts in our hearts that we never act out. And, and it might simply be because there's no opportunity to do so. Maybe, you know, maybe the sinfulness, the sinful motives in our hearts could be restrained circumstantially by, by the presence of other people, could be restrained by the fear of getting caught, it could be restrained simply by social mores, you know, this is, that's just not the right thing you would do in public for all to see, whatever it is. You know, that is God's grace to us. That's God's grace to us. If we lived in a world, imagine if we lived in a world where everybody acted on every sinful idea, every sinful desire in our hearts, we acted it out. This would be hell, literally. And for that reason, the Lord graciously, it's not hell yet, the Lord graciously restrains our hearts from outward sin in many different ways. However, there are other times when for reasons that are his own, the Lord removes those restraints and puts us in situations where we have both the motive as well as the opportunity to go ahead and sin and our hearts are allowed to go wherever we want to go. Now listen carefully. In ordaining those times and circumstances, it does not mean that the Lord is the one creating our sin. He's not. That's, that's all ours. Our, our sinful deeds flow from our own hearts that truly want to sin. That's what we want to do. And yet the Lord is still sovereign over our sin by controlling all the circumstances and shaping influences that bring us to the point where the seed of that particular manifestation of sin in our hearts grows to the point of full expression. That's the theology behind it, I believe. So what is God doing? What is God up to in those times when sin breaks out? When we, when we do it? Well, certainly one thing is that he may be graciously showing us it is a gracious thing that God would show us what we are really capable of. And that's gracious because we are so easily deceived. We're easily deceived into thinking, you know, I could never commit such a sin. I could never be like that, <laughs> that person. I would never do that. <sighs> so disgusting. We're so easily deceived into thinking that we're better than other people whose lives are so messed up and marred by, you know, the evident outward, you know, scandal. And sometimes God chooses to show us the sad truth that is in our own hearts. And he does so because it's only then that we will truly understand, truly grasp, truly own up to our need for the gospel. So 
Think about this again. Let's go back to Joseph and the brothers. Joseph's brothers planned to murder him and then settled for selling him into lifelong slavery instead. I mean, they just, oh, they were so kind, soft, you know. It's a ludicrous sin. It's a ludicrous thing what they did. And these ludicrous, sinful men are the very foundation stones for a community, a congregation, a company of peoples into which, through which, God would build a holy people. There's nobody else to work with. How is it possible for God, whose eyes are so pure, too pure to even look upon evil, to sovereignly use our sins for His glory and for our good and the good of the nations? And this is where Genesis 37 powerfully foreshadows this glorious gospel we love and believe. For you see, God the Father sent His own beloved Son into this world to live among the descendants, the descendants of Joseph's brothers, and to seek their shalom, seek their welfare, their peace. Unlike Joseph, This loving father knew exactly what would happen. And whereas God restrained Joseph's brothers from killing him, our heavenly father did not restrain the sin of those who hated Jesus. The father surrendered his precious son into the hands of wicked men who stripped him, not of a royal robe, but of a simple peasant's tunic, and then they brutally beat him and executed him. In Genesis 37, 1 through 11, Joseph, he's all full of words, right? And um, in verses 12 and 13, he says, Here am I, when his father sends him on his mission to find his brothers. The the turning point, though, when when his brothers seize him, he does not open his mouth. Again, resembling Jesus, foreshadowing Jesus, whose voice could have commanded legions upon legions of angels to come and restrain those who were venting out their sin on him, but who instead chose to be silent. And why was he silent? Why was Jesus silent? Because by his silence, Jesus exercised his sovereign rule and reign even over the most scandalous of sins, his own death. He, 
They, they had no power to commit such sin against him except by the power which Jesus himself gave to them. We, we learn that in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, that says that Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, a sinful act that took place, you know this text, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. At the cross, something happened that the men who nailed Jesus to it could never have anticipated. Just as Joseph's brothers could never have anticipated what God was up to through their sinful and murderous jealousy. It was the power of the cross. Its power lay precisely in the fact that the one who was being slain was sinless. Jesus wasn't suffering for his own sin. He wasn't dying for his own iniquity. Nor was he there by accident. Nor was he there against his will. He was there for us. And in his death, we too died. And in his resurrection, we too were raised to new, newness of life. And this, this gift of forgiveness comes to us freely as we simply trust in what Jesus has done for us. Instead of trying to, to stand before God all dressed up in our righteousness, justified by our own best efforts to do what is good and right, we put on the blood-stained robe of Jesus and we ask God to recognize His Son's robe as our own record of anger, unbelief, jealousy, pride, lust, covetousness, laziness, unforgiveness. God looks at that and... He gives us the perfect record of Jesus Christ, which is the very reason why broken and sinful people like Joseph's brothers and like us can be forgiven and included in this miraculous company of peoples. It's not about any righteousness that you and I can attain. It's solely based on Jesus' faith and obedience credited to us and his death that atones for our, all our sins, both the ones that we act out as well as the ones that just remain as seeds in our hearts. And it is this reality. It's, it's seeing this painful story and our painful stories of shattered dreams that can reframe the way we think about it all. Reframe the way we think about the shattered dreams of our lives as well as the painful sins that others have committed against us or the terrible sins that we commit against others. And so it's for our encouragement. It's for our encouragement that God sovereignly uses them all to refine us and to form us and to train us and to redeem us to be company of peoples for his glory. Let's pray. Forbid, O oh God, that we would be glib about your promise that all things work together for the good of those who love you and called according to your purpose. Forbid that we would be glib, particularly in relationship to those who have gone through very, very hard things whose dreams have been shattered in ways and in 
painful things that are unspeakable. So it's with great soberness and seriousness that we take hold of this promise that for those who, whose affections have been awakened by your sovereign grace and they love you, that you do work all things together in mind-blowing ways. You take all the good things, you, you assert all of your divine attributes, you, you bring the, the person and work of Jesus, the cross to bear upon us, you, you pour out your Holy Spirit to us, you give us scripture, you communicate yourself through your written word, you pour out spiritual gifts, you bring us into spiritual community with other brothers and sisters in Christ, people pray for us, you even send angels, Lord, to minister to us. I mean, just the countless good that, that you do, all these good things, the ways that you, you provide for us and, and help us and strengthen us and encourage us. But you also take all of the worst things And so it's with uh, gravity and soberness that we, we recognize that there are, there are, there's uninvited suffering that comes into our lives. And you use it for our eternal well-being. And there are sins that are committed against us and you use them for our eternal well-being. And sin sometimes breaks out in our own lives and you use it for our eternal well-being. And so it's with humility, Lord, and with gratitude that we, we acknowledge that you're God and we're not your ways are beyond our ways. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you would bless your people with faith, with illumination of the glories of, of a suffering Savior. And so uh, take us deeper into this sweetness of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, whose name we're going to sing now. Let's stand together.